You were listening to Making It in the Toy Industry, episode number 55. Welcome to Making It in the Toy Industry, a podcast for inventors and entrepreneurs like you. And now your host, Ajel Wade. Well, hey there, toy people. Welcome back to another episode of Making It in the Toy Industry. This is a weekly podcast brought to you by thetoycoach.com. Today, I am joined by Terry Nichelle Bradley, the founder and CEO of Brown Toy Box. Terry's toy company makes steam culturally representative, accessible, and fun. Her books, Buy Brown Toy Box, allow for Black children to see themselves positively represented in children's products and in media. And the toys and activities that she offers make STEAM fun, exciting, all while expanding career possibilities for Black children. I love the mission behind Terry's company, so I'm really excited to have her on the show today. So now I know some of my newer listeners have asked me, how do you go about raising funding for your toy business? Toy products can be expensive, so where do you go to raise funds to invest into it? And my answer has always been just to start small. Start with the toy categories that are more affordable to produce, like paper-based products, and then as your demand grows, so can your product line. But after following the posts of my guest today, I realized that my dreams may be too small. Reduced by a history of just being oppressed, you know how it is, Black women, sometimes we make our dreams smaller to fit into what we think we're allowed to have. So today, we're going to dream bigger. And that is why I invited Terry Nichelle Bradley on the show today to talk about how to find funding for your toy business. Now, Terry was recently named one of Inc.'s 100 Top Female Founders of 2020. Her company was honored with a Google Startups for Black Founders Fund Award, and she landed $10,000 as a part of Target Accelerator's program. Now, Terry has been featured on numbers of local TV shows with her product, Brown Toy Box. Terry, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I am really excited to be here. I'm a big fan. You know that. Yes, I know. I know you're a fan. Well, I don't know what took me so long to get you on the show, but I'm glad (laughs) that you're finally here and you come with some really valuable advice. That's the important thing. I hope so. Why don't you tell us how your journey in toys began? So I am a mom of four. Um, All my kids are almost grown at this point. My youngest is 16, but I was just one of those moms that could never find anything that really represented my kids. So I left corporate 2012, something like that, not too long after I went through a divorce. I just was looking for, you know, my purpose. So I was having this like mountaintop moment. It literally was a mountaintop. I was going around. We have this mountain here, Stone Mountain, about to go work out, exercise. And I was going around it and I was talking to both like God and my mom who had passed away. And I was like, I just hate my life and what should I be doing and what should I be, you know, that whole kind of thing. And I just heard God say to me, you know, look at your life. And, you know, and and that just started this whole thing that got me um, really focused on toys and thinking about representation uh, and kids. And and so I just like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And so I did. Oh, that's amazing. That's a great story. We've all been there. I've been there. Was Brown Toy Box your first endeavor in the toy industry? It was, but what I like to be really transparent with people, when I first launched Brown Toy Box, it failed. Okay. And it failed because I didn't have the business behind it tight. We wanted to um, really focus on just culturally affirming products. So I would go out and I wasn't negotiating wholesale prices. I wasn't wasn't doing any of the business pieces. I wasn't thinking about logistics and um, shipping and those kinds of things. I was like, this is really cute. I want kids to have this. I wasn't looking at my cost of goods, any of those things that you have to do to really have a legitimate business. It was, I was running it as if it was a mission or a a ministry. Like I'm like, I was doing a church ministry or something. And so Christmas, biggest thing I didn't do was put on my website that you had to have your orders in by this certain date in order to guarantee shipping for Christmas. And Christmas came 
I was still getting orders on like December 22nd, 23rd. And here I am thinking like, I've got to fulfill these orders to make sure these kids get this by Christmas or, you know, one, I didn't want to disappoint kids, but two, I didn't want to get like blasted on social media. And I was spending, I think the boxes at that time were like $30 or something like that. I was spending $30 just on shipping alone. Oh my God. You know? And so I was able to kind of hobble along for a few more months and I had to shut down and said, Terry, you really need to go back to the basics and really understand the fundamentals. Um, I had been in corporate for a long time, but I had never ran a business. I spent a good year really understanding and creating my business model and understanding like my cost of goods and my supply chain and all of that. And then was able to relaunch. That's an important lesson. There's no real overnight success. I think people get enamored by that idea, but your your successes are due to your failures. So they're not a bad thing. They're just part of the process, right? Absolutely. It's only a failure if you don't learn from it. You win or you learn. And if I got back in business and did the exact same thing, then that's the failure. But I learned from those mistakes and I was able to, you know, really um, grow a, a business. So tell us what is Brown Toy Box? To We haven't really said what it is. What is Brown Toy Box? So we are a children's educational product company that really centers and celebrates Black children through STEAM education, purposeful play, and cultural representation. At its core, we launched as a STEAM kit that included a book on a Black trailblazer, a hands-on project, and then some other fun things like stickers that reinforce this the specific theme or t-shirts or whatever else, right? But this fall, we are evolving into a full-scale toy company, and we're starting with uh, games and activities. And that really was a lot of in due to your coaching. So, I mean, um, the, the having, it really, really was because, How? you know, because I had thought, you know what, I'm going to do these plastics and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I was like, you can't afford that. <laughs> and so, so, <laughs> so it was like, start with paper-based. Yeah. So we're doing, we're starting with memory cards, bingo games, um, like really fun things that uh, we let, so in each of our kits, we have characters that reinforce the theme because we want kids to be able to be excited about seeing themselves represented. And so the first line of toys that we're doing are around our kids that our families have come to know in our kits. And so we are really, really super excited to really introduce the kids. This is the Dadisi Academy crew. Dadisi means curious in Swahili. And this is a very intentional toy line that we think that it really will have good traction. And we know that because we already have we already have a market through the folks in our, who purchased our skin kit, but also just through some of our other marketing um, outreach that we've been able to do. Yeah, people always think that the hardest part of building a toy company is like building the toy mm-hmm. and yeah, obviously selling it. And people don't realize the hardest part and the most important part is actually building yourself a market. There are people out there, but you need to get them in your ecosystem. And if they're not in your ecosystem, you're not going to be able to sell to them. Absolutely. That's why I think you should always start with the paper-based products, the more affordable products, build your IP, build your brand, and then move on to investing in the really expensive plastic products. And if you don't want to wait, you can always do some open market plastic products, right? You can start there. You can start there. Yeah. And we're doing that too. We're doing that too. We have a, Amara is our chemistry kid and we're doing a microscope set that we're doing, um, but that we're going to customize and do some things. But yeah, we're doing OEM with, with Amara. So you're absolutely right. People don't think about that. They just want to do their own thing right off the bat. But people always look at like Hasbro Mattel, right? They look at that. They're like, yeah. I want to be them. But you have to remember, <laughs> they started so long ago. The market was so different. And Hasbro started as essentially a retailer. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. You, you can't compare, compare yourself. It's like apples and oranges. You're starting in a completely different time. You're absolutely right. So how did you validate that your idea was viable? So I did a lot of focus groups. I did a lot of surveys. I went to organizations and, and people who belong to civic groups like Mocha Moms and Jack and Jill, which are African-American moms that are really, I mean, they're, they're like, you know, moms on steroids, right? And so that's their center is their kids. And so we just talked about 
what is it that you want to see? What do you wish you had? What do, what do you wish was out there that's not out there now? What are your hopes and dreams for your kids? You know, those kind of things. And prior to getting into starting Brown Toy Box, my experience and my expertise is in public relations. Right. And I worked with Fortune 500 brands who are really working to build relationships with African-American moms, the gatekeeper to the home. So I already had some traction there, understood the market. Um, but I did a lot of surveying. I would bring in, I would go out to Target and Walmart and buy a bunch of toys and put them in front of them and ask them, why does it speak to you or not speak to you? What is it that you, you know, what is it lacking? That kind of thing. I like that idea of the, the focus group with competitor product. I like that idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and oftentimes, you know, what we would hear back was, you know, even in the packaging, right? Like these boxes don't even have any black kids on them, you know, or in books that were targeted towards black kids, instead of putting black children on them, they would use animal creatures, right? Yes. And so yes. Um, for me, we don't use animals. I've, animals are cute and cuddly and all that stuff, but it's also kind of insulting. Like you don't trust that there's a market enough yep. that you will put a black child on this book. So you'll put a tiger or, you know, an elephant. I'm not doing that. I want children to see themselves represented, and then I see themselves represented with an elephant. So yeah, so we did those kind of things, and we got all of the learnings back, and we're like, okay, so what do we want to create then? We got all this information, you know, and a lot of that was we launched the first time, remember, because we failed, and it was all off me being a mom. Well, I'm a mom. I know what everybody wants, right? You know, and so I know what I wanted for my kids, but I really had to cast a wider net. And ask other moms, what is it that you want for your kids? What is it that you, you know, again, what, what's lacking out there? And, um, and then build from there. Can we talk a little bit about the Facebook groups? Because I know we were in a call and we started talking about outreach and finding Black moms. And I use Facebook groups a lot for my, in my business and in the Toy Coach. But tell me, how do you use Facebook groups? And how do you find the right ones for your product? Because there are so many. The way that I do it is being really super transparent. We look at who our customers are um, and we look at some of the groups that they're a part of. Yes. And we go deep there. So we, we follow the money, right? So who's actually spending money in that, on these type of products? And so not like who says, yeah, because it's easy to get people to say, if you had this, would you buy it? A lot of people are going to say yes, right? But the question is, who's actually buying things like this? And so that's where we want to spend our time and our resources because we are a very, very small team still. And, you know, I don't want to do gunshot glass marketing. And so it's really important that I hone in based on customers that we do have. And then we build profiles of customers like this, right? And so we go into those type of um, Facebook groups. We're just now about to start experimenting with some other things like TikTok. I'm scared to death of it. Yeah. Um, and things like that. But we know that, you know, that's where a lot of parents are. You know, I really started really local too. You did start very local. I noticed that. Very in Atlanta, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My other question though is you mentioned like a couple of Black Facebook groups, Black Moms Facebook groups. When you were first starting, you had no real customers. How did you even find those initial groups? So when we first started, it was Mocha Mom groups. I mean, folks from PTA. So I was very active in PTA. It was that kind of thing, and we and spread out, right? And so then they started talking about. It. I was like, well, I know you're focused on the Atlanta chapter, but do you know people in Charlotte? You know, and then they, there'd be a connection. Or I started out a lot doing partnerships, and that's how I really started building. Um, awareness with through partnerships. So I would, you know, even doing discount codes for a local chapter of, of an organization in Charlotte, if I knew that was the market that I really want to go, go into. But hey, if you, um, you know, if we can partner on kind of spreading the word about Brown Toy Box, all of your members will get 25% off their first three months, you know, that kind of thing. That got me into those markets. So you just have to be really scrappy and really creative about how do you build awareness about your brand. And I have to say, like, when I was looking at the history of your brand, it felt very similar to me to the kind of the story I read of uh, Rob Angel's journey creating Pictionary. 
because he too started really local. Like they sold that game just in their hometown before it started to spread and get bigger. And it's the same thing when you're thinking about Facebook ads. I love talking about Facebook ads. I'm all about it. When you don't have a lot of money to spend, you're supposed to restrict your ads to one area. So New York City, maybe the tri-state area so that your money can do more for you because it's restricted to a certain area. It's the same thing when you're building a business. You niche down. If you can't, the way that I'm niching down to inventors, if you have a toy company, so you're like, I can't niche down that way. You niche down locally. You niche down by area and then you saturate that area, become a little mini celebrity in that area. And then those people will help you get to the next level. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's exactly the key. Like everybody wants to start off national, right? Yeah. But your money is diluted. Your impact is diluted when you are spread so thin. So start local and hyper target your local community first. Yes. Such good. And it allows you to test more too, right? You can have high touch to local, whereas, you know, otherwise you have to do, well, now everybody's doing Zoom, but you'd have to do you know, more digital interaction. But here I could go in and I could do these, these surveys and focus groups and I could watch and see real reactions and those kind of things. I, I, I definitely recommend starting local. I mean, and you just have to think about it from a marketing perspective. Like if a mom is goes to her cousin's house and says, oh, you haven't heard of Brown Toy Box to her cousin. Her cousin's like, no, her, I've never heard of this. She's like, really? Because everybody in my neighborhood loves it. That holds so much more weight than somebody just saying, oh, I found this random Instagram ad that no one else has heard of. And, you know, that holds so much more weight. So great tip. Fantastic tip. Absolutely. Okay. So now I have seen you pop up on my LinkedIn feed nonstop since we've been connected. I'm going to, everyone says I appear everywhere. I feel like you appear everywhere. So first I noticed you were doing, like we said, a bunch of local events, but then you started being featured on all these news channels. And now I'm seeing you get all of these funding opportunities. Like you're landing these funding deals and I see your process. It's slow build, but I, I kind of want to know, was that intentional toward your funding plan? Absolutely. So when I first launched, I called a bunch of local um, prominent entrepreneurs. I reached out. I'm a LinkedIn queen. <laughs> so I reached out to a local, a lot, a lot of local prominent entrepreneurs. And they would give me like 15 minutes on the phone. And they would talk about your friends and family round. You need $100,000. I'm like, I'm in trouble because I don't have, I am the friends and family round. Most entrepreneurs are the ones that the fans and family used to always come to for money. Mm. And so I was like, well, that's not going to work. So what else can I do? So for me, I knew that I was going to have to have a very slow build. You know, um, for me, I knew that it was going to be an awareness game, right? And because of my background, like I don't have a lot of money for marketing. I don't have a lot of money. But what I do know is my background is public relations. Yeah. And so I know how to leverage that to get awareness because people want to be associated with the winner, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I am not one of those um, founders that want to be a celebrity founder. That is never the reason why I do pray. Like, and if that's your reason, you probably want to check yourself because, you know, if you, you live by a good, the praise and you got to die. I say, if you live by applause, you die by the booty. And so I never want to be that person. But what I do know is for everything that posts, if the Inc. Magazine founding 100 top founders, that translated to text. Yeah. Right. Doing, you know, being a part of Google for startups, the Atlanta Founders Academy, got the Black Founders Fund money. That translates to more eyeballs and folks wanting to pour into Brown Toy Box. So I'm super intentional about my why. It's never because I want to be featured on the cover of some magazine or I want to be. It's because I know that that's the way that I'm going to capitalize my business. It's so true. So when you first started Brown Toy Box, how did you fund it since you didn't, you know, you were the one and I'm assuming your PR game, you didn't even tap into what you knew. You were just kind of like, like you said, a ministry right. business. You were just doing it for yeah. the purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you fund that first round? Um, I funded it the way that I would recommend no one to do with my 401k. <gasps> no, you didn't. I did. I was like, I'm all in. I believe in this. God told me to do this business. So I'm going to use my 401k. And I would not recommend that for anyone, right? You know, and then it was, I got the incubators and accelerators because some of them come with capital. Um, and the ones that I'm 
I gravitate to, or even really when I first started, they all had to have capital associated with it. Like, you know, I don't need you to help me write it. And I did, but I thought I did. I don't need you to help me write a business plan. I don't need you to help (laughs) me do this. I need capital. And the truth is, I wouldn't have known exactly what to do or how to spend it or leverage it in the way that would be the most impactful. So I did need those things. But at this point, you know, it's always only going to be things that either get me closer to my customers or that comes with capital. So I don't do anything that's just like, oh, and you have the opportunity to access the capital. That's, that's, that's buzzword for you. They're not giving you anything. Um, And so, uh, like that access to capital is is the trick. For me, I'm very selective when it comes to those things, but that's a really good way to start to get both um, attraction and awareness about your business, but then also sometimes be the capital for your business. Where do you look to find um, accelerator programs to join? Do you just Google them or do you ask for referrals from, like you said, local entrepreneurs that you've built relationships with? So when I first started, I I don't know, I think I was just online and I saw this accelerator that focused on social impact. And I know ultimately the goal of Bond Toy Box is to change the trajectory of the kids' lives that, you know, we're creating products for, to help them expand their ideas and the possibilities for their lives. And so I applied and I got in and I was like, oh, okay, this was kind of hush-hush though. It wasn't something that was like heavily promoted or anything like that, but then it's feels almost to me like once you're in, like you've got the, the secret code, like you start hearing about other ones. But I think if you are very intentional, like if you're like, I'm looking for accelerator for consumer products. Now it's they're much more prominent where you can you can find and this is only like three years ago. Right. You know, everybody's got an accelerator incubator. So you've got to be very discerning about what you um spend your time trying to, you know, get into. But I think for me it was Kind of hush-hush, and I I found that one, and then from there, I just found so many others. And each of them had, you know, I I think I've done like four, but they were all for different reasons, you know. So the first one was social impact. The other one was really about really having a strong business acumen. What I would recommend to people when they're like, hey, I don't even know where to start. Again, here we go with local. Look around for local accelerators. And and I think in most cities that you're going to find some, you'll find some pretty good ones. So when people go to to sign up for these accelerators or grants, I'm sure that they're thinking, okay, why is somebody going to give this money to me? What is the exchange? So what is usually the average ask when you're going into an accelerator program that is giving you funding? So it depends. So the first one, because it was really focused on social impact, it was non-diluted capital, right? I think that first one was like 20K that was given to all of the entrepreneurs, Uh, right? It was a good one. And so it was 20K that was given to all of the entrepreneurs. No, it was 5K. And then they had a secondary component to it, which was the residency, which was 20K. Um, But, and that was through Sarah Blakely. Oh, thanks. The red backpack? Well, it wasn't the red backpack. She gives she gave us all a red backpack, but it's the, just the social entrepreneur, but it's focused on Atlanta because Banks is based here in Atlanta. So, but what you can expect for some other ones are like equity. So you've got to be clear on how much equity you want to give away of your company or that, you, I shouldn't say give away, but how much are you willing, yeah, how much equity are you willing to give yeah. for an investment? Some are, a lot of them, a lot of your time. So when you're building a business, most important resource you have is your time. You know, and that's why you have to be very discerning about how you affiliate and which ones you you really um, go after. So I was doing at one point I was doing two incubators at the same time. Wow! And it was a lot of time, but they're not like full time. So I don't want people to think that you got to do it like you know forty hours a week. You're in this incubator accelerator. It was like Wednesdays for a full day, you know, every other Wednesday for a full day for six months. But I felt like that was a good investment in my business and it was a good investment in myself as a leader of my business. With the Sarah Blakely, it was, like I said, it was a follow-up to the first part of that fellowship and that came with $20,000. And that really was important and critical to me being able to build the business. Because if you have a product business, you know that there's actual real cost in terms of just getting inventory and, you know, getting my physical boxes and, and those kind of things. So those things have were, were really, really helpful. But I think people should really expect a good amount of time and just know that these incubators and accelerators, they want to 
talk about you, right? So they want to talk about what they've done and how they've invested in these entrepreneurs and whether it's because you're a woman or because you have a special niche or because, so they want to be able to demonstrate that because they came through this incubator accelerator, their business has moved this far along. But for me, that comes with an exchange. So for me, I knew I wasn't going to let anyone capitalize off of Brown Toy Box without me getting something in return. So it wasn't just the capital, but, you know, there would be networking events that would be associated with some of these incubated sellers. I'm going to go in knowing that I'm going to walk out with three or four different relationships, whether anybody introduces me or not. I think that's the other thing. Don't go into it incubator celebrate with the expectation that it's going to change your business or it's going to change your life. You've got to take that opportunity and make it be what you want it to be. And so you can't use me to promote your accelerator unless you're really doing something in my business. Right. And so there's, there's one that I won't name that I never give a shout out to. I never mention because I got no value from it. Um, and so uh, but others, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty generous about talking about how great they were because they did a lot for my business and for me as a leader. Now, speaking about your accelerators, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Google Founders program that you're a part of? That sounds exciting. Yeah. So oh, the other part of this for the accelerators incubators and Google included is that usually there's some type of pitch competition to get in, some extensive application that, you know, because they're really trying to get, you know, people that are really focused, that know where they're going, that, you know, depending on what which one it is, that have some traction, that kind of thing. So Google, I started in, like, right in the height of COVID, right? So I think I started it in the end of, at the end of March. Oh, wow. You know, yeah, yeah. and initially it was planned to be in person. Um, I think it was going to be once a month, but because of COVID, we did bi-weekly virtual classes. We covered everything from like sales strategy, customer acquisition, you know, the tech technology and cloud, leveraging the cloud. Obviously, that's not my strong piece because you know how I'm talking about it. Um, we've talked about, I mean, so all these different components. And then we had opportunities to gain mentorship from people at Google. So I have an amazing mentor that was part of this program that I got a Google person. And like, we have a call on Thursday. Like, we're winding down now, yeah. but we still have a call on Thursday. And he's been so helpful. He's helped me rethink like my KPIs and my marketing strategy and, and those kind of things. But I think at, at right around August, there was an announcement that there was going to be this Black Founders Fund and um, that if we were interested, we could, you know, apply to get funding from it. And so I think there were 76 founders that got funding at the, in October. 35 of them were from Atlanta. And I think that's just really a factor of just how many entrepreneurs are here in Atlanta. And I think most people got between 50,000 and 100,000, somewhere on that. You found out about this because of another accelerator you were already in? No, I was in, I was in this one. So I was okay. in the accelerator and they made an announcement that they were going to be doing this Black Founders Fund because of social unrest. And, you know, they wanted to really put their money where their messaging was. And so it was, it was great. You aligned yourself with the right people. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you have to be in the right places, right? And so I was already a part of it. I submitted an application Um you know, talking about how I would use the funds and that kind of thing. And then um, in September, uh, we were supposed to have a final interview call. And I got on, I had all my talking points, and this is how I'm going to use the capital, and this is the traction I have. And so I'm just talking, and I'm just, like, giving it to them. Like, I am on. And um, they're like, well, really, you know, we've already decided we're giving you $50,000. Wow. You're like, okay. Okay. Right. And this capital is non-diluted, which, you know, just means they're not taking any investment. They're not taking any equity. It's just here, go do your business. It's a grant. And That's what yeah, that is. Yes. Yes. And, and so they were like, um. Should have called me. I need to be in this program. <laughs> listen, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, like, uh, and there's so many other ones now because right after I did the Target, a new venture fund pitch. Uh-huh. And so I submitted again. Let me say this. It is so important that founders have their narrative down cold. Yes. Right? Have a strong story. Yes. And be able to articulate it 
whether you're talking to an accelerator, a potential investor, whether you're talking to just a customer or you're just talking to just somebody walking down the street. Like you should be able to say, hey, let me tell you about brown toy box and then go and, you know, that kind of thing. And so at this point, I mean, over the summer, I think I applied for everything. So, you know, but I applied to pitch and I found out I made it to the top 10. And so I was going to be pitching the next week. And then I won $10,000. And with that also came affiliation to 1863 Ventures, which is an amazing VC group for me and Brown Toy Box. We don't necessarily want VC money. I think if you listen to, I don't know if you ever listen to How I Built This. Yeah, sometimes. With Guy Ross. The one thing that's always interesting to me are the founders that took a lot of outside capital, private equity money that took, you know, a lot of VC money are the ones that always, if he says, what would you have done differently? That's I would never have taken that money. Really? Oh, Let's explain why, what's the difference in taking VC money versus giving a piece of your equity when you join a program, like some of the programs you're joining? I can tell you of all the programs I've joined, I've never given any equity away. Oh, okay. So for me, that's a deal breaker. Now, I know as I continue to build Brown Toy Box, there's going to come a time (laughs) when I'm going to have to make a decision to give away equity because I need a bigger of funding. But what I also caution people is why in the heck would you give someone 10% of your company for $50,000? Right. Like the math doesn't add up, right? Especially if you know the potential of your business. If you can see the trajectory, if you have the deals and you just need the capital, at that point, it's it's a business loan, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly right. And so I would rather take on debt. And I know some people are risk averse and they don't want to take on the debt. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, all in. Well, I mean, if you ha- you have a business plan, you're not doing it blindly. You're not doing it without projections. You're not doing it without proof, even proof. So exactly. I okay. I want to get into this one post that you put on LinkedIn because this post really spoke to me. It really hit home to me. Um, it was when you were announcing your Google Fund Award, and you posted, and I quote. When we tell white founders we are looking to raise an initial 300k, they ask, "Is that enough?" And when we tell Black founders, they say, good luck. I get it. The response is from being beat down and dismissed. And I felt that post. But for some of my listeners, like non-Black listeners, they might not get it. They might not understand. So I want to dive into that a little bit more with you. But I know my Black listeners are like, oh, yeah, I feel that way. I feel it. (laughs) So for me, I've had a time in my career where I was happy making a certain level. And I literally never thought I would get to enough to a level that I later reached within a year of thinking I would never get there. But what helped me get to that point, what helped me think that I was worth that amount was actually somebody else in my life, seeing my value, seeing my worth, not a family member, of course, because it wouldn't be another black person. So Mm -hmm. seeing my value, seeing my worth and saying, girl, like you should be making so much more money. And I'm like, think that's true. And they're like, no, it's true. And then I went to an interview and I asked for it because I was like, I have nothing to lose. Like, who cares? And they said, yes. And I was like, wait, has this been happening to everyone else? Like, is this what the standard is? But so many, and not all, but so many Black people are still um, held back thinking they shouldn't ask for more. And I think it might extend to other minorities as well, just expecting less. I I feel like that's what you were saying in that post. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. It's 100%. It's like we ask for what we think we can get and not what we need. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what we'll do is I can make, I don't know, 50,000 work when you know you need 300, right? Yeah. But you're so used to being told no. Or maybe not even asking the question because $300,000, who the hell do you think you are? Right. Like, that sounds astronomical. So other Black founders will be like, girl, you have lost your mind. $300,000. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, yeah. But then when I talk to my mentors or advisors that are, you know, that are white, so and I say, they're like, well, how much are you trying to raise? And I'll say, $300,000, like really quiet <laughs> and neat, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, wait, are you sure? Is that enough? I mean, like, have you built your salary in there? We don't want to invest if, you know, you're not, the, you know, the founder is not in, in there. And if you have, you have all your costs in there, that can't be right. No. And I'm thinking, uh, <laughs> I should say more? <laughs> really? 
Oh you know, gosh. so that same thing that you experience. And so I think we are so used to getting by, like making it work. Making it work. You know, but just imagine if you could operate without fear, right? And when you are scraping by, there's always that element of fear that I'm going to run out of money really quickly. Yeah. Um, because I know, I mean, while I'm, I'm creative with this money, mm-hmm. you know, I know that I need more, but I didn't want to push my luck. Right. 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 By asking for what I really needed. Mm-hmm. And so I think what has happened in the last, I don't know, even just the last six months is I've got a much more bold spirit. And I'm going to tell you what I, what I need. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, this is what I can give you. And then I can tell you what, whether I can accept that or whether I can't, or whether, you know, I'm willing to give equity for that or whether, you know, what that, so we can have a conversation, but I think the conversation has, and because also what it says to people is like your person in your life said to you, you don't know your worth. Yeah. They were you know? shocked. I, you know, this same person is the reason I even have my patents listed anywhere on my resume. I never used to have them listed. I thought that's not like, what do you mean? Like, that's not a big deal. And they're like, are you crazy? Of course it's a big deal. And you just feel like you're not enough. You always feel like you're not enough. So it's hard. But I, I also, there is this line because I feel like there is a younger generation and I see a lot of them coming up feeling a little bit self-righteous, feeling like, you know, I deserve this and that. There is there is a line, like there is a, a phase in every entrepreneur's life and there's a phase in your career where you're learning and you're taking on things for um, less than you should be paid. You're, you're trying and you're growing when you're new, right? But when you've got experience, you have to, the thing is you have to reevaluate every couple of years and you have to say, where have I come from? Where, how far have I grown? What do I know? And then reevaluate your value and say, okay, well now in the toy space, I'm worth $300,000. So, so. Absolutely. I mean, it's so funny, Joe, because you're absolutely right. There are younger folks that are coming up and they're like, I want to come out of college and I want to make this. And I want to do yeah. What is your proof point? Why would I ever pay you that? You know? Yeah. And so slow your roll. Like, slow your roll. You need to get some weight, get, get your weight up. It's a different kind of negotiation. I used to take jobs and say like, this is what I want to get paid, but I understand you don't see my value. So I'm willing to start lower if you will reevaluate me in six months. You can totally do that. It's just a different negotiation, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. As opposed to, um, you know, I don't want to work these kind of days. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Oh, I, I, I appreciate your high self-esteem, but I can't hire you. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, so when you're negotiating, so yeah, I think we should clarify that piece. Is Yeah, when you are asking or you're raising capital or you're, whatever you're doing for your business, let it be based on the fact that you've got a track record or you've got some proof points or you know this customer segment or you've done your, you know, I say all the time, nobody in the world can ever outwork me, you know, and I think, you know, make sure that people can look and be like, yeah, she might be on a lot of stuff, but she's always about her business, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so I think um, you got to have that too. So don't go in it with a lot of hubris and nothing to back it up. Oh, I like that. I'm getting so yeah. many good quotes from this episode. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so excited. All right. What would you say is the hardest part about funding? You know, it's so subjective because the social impact baked into what we do. Sometimes when I'm talking to social impact investors, they want to know, how many kids have you touched? How many lives? How many this? How many that? Because we also, our B2B side is we go into schools by our student kids and that kind of thing. But then for traditional investors, they're like, what's your bottom line? What is your pathway to this? What is this? What is that? So you've got to know your numbers frontwards and backwards. You got to know who you're talking to. Like I would go into some of my, I would go into some of my meetings like, hey, let's just have a friendly conversation. But I hadn't done the research on the person I was talking to. What are the kind of things they invest in? What are they excited about? Like now I do free full recon on people, right? So I'm like, I know, you know, if I look at their Instagram, I'm like, oh, their kids go to private school. I could talk about it from that perspective. Or, or oh, they really are into the tech aspect. So then I could talk about like the apps and the games that we have in development, those kind of things. So you've got to really understand who you're talking to, and you've got to be able to really articulate your use of funds. Like, so don't go in saying, I want $300,000, and they ask you, well, what would you use it for? And you're like, oh, I just need $300,000, <laughs> but why? How specific are you getting with your funds? 
like I'll break it into big buckets, right? And then on a next conversation, then we'll go into deeper. So if I'm saying of that $40,000 for marketing so I can do X, Y, and Z, the next conversation, like, you know what, that was in- interesting what you said about what you want to do with your marketing. Let's explore that a little bit more. And then I'll be able to give them a deep dive into that. Or if it's because we want to go into a different market or we want to, re- you know, we want to get our cost of goods down for or, or repackage for retail. You know, you got to be able to talk about why you want your money. Ooh, why you want your money. Why, why should you invest in me? Right. Why am I the right leader to do this work? So I can tell you about the market size. I can tell you about that. But why am I the person to do this work? Because really, people invest in the idea. But really, you see these companies that fail all the time, and they turn around and get more money. But they will, I guarantee you, they will be able to get money again. Because people bet on them and not necessarily, and then, you know, this half-baked idea or concept or whatever. And for founders of color, you don't get that same level of leeway. You just don't. But you do have to make sure that you exude confidence and that you give people the confidence that they want to do business with you and that you can be trusted with their, um, with their investment. Now I'm wondering, how do you convey your sales and profit when you're going to meet with investors? Are you ever uncomfortable sharing it? And like, do you discern who you're going to really share numbers with and who you're not? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's like, everybody can't know my numbers, right? Yeah. Especially when I was first starting, I was embarrassed by my numbers. I'm like, here's my $3. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I made $3 this month. Look at me. But again, because like I said, our time is our most valuable resource. Yes. And so uh, for some, there's no value. And, you know, um, and I'll say, you know what, this probably isn't going to be a great fit or whatever. But if I'm unsure, I'll go into it. I may have even have my numbers with me, but I'm going to see how the meeting is going, right? And if I have to spend a lot of time talking about why Black folks buy toys or how I know that Black folks are going to buy toys or how I know that there's a market or why the Southeast is really important. And, you know, if I'm spending all my time educating on who my market is, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I can tell you, you know, this is what I've done in sales, but we're not going to parse the numbers because right now you're trying to validate whether... I even have a legitimate business. You're trying to validate rather I mean, a legitimate market that I'm going after. Right. And so there's so much education that has to be done, even on just like, this is who my market is. I'm like, I always think, I wonder what it would have been if I, you know, made chairs. Because I'm just talking about furniture. I'm not talking about this specific, like, people like, oh, um, you know, there's a, there's a big market for, for toys. Then there's even toys in general. People say, people still buy toys. Like, it's a $27 billion industry in the U.S., $90 billion global. And they're like, really? I thought all kids were on game. No, no, no. There is a toy market. You know, I said, when's the last time you took a trip down the toy aisle? But I also think when you're in those meetings, and I know you're asking about the numbers, but in those meetings, you have to be able, again, people want to do business with people that they like. And so for me, one of the things that I like to always ask, what was your favorite toy when you were a kid? Yes. Oh, it's so true. I always ask that question. Yeah. Get some down memory lane, positive memories, hopefully. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And you get them and you got them. And they start talking about that Tonka truck or this or that. And how did it make you feel when you got it? And, you know, all of that. It's all psychology. And then tie that in. Well, that's how I'm making the children feel with brown toy box. Exactly. That's awesome. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. And that's why parents are excited because their kids are so excited. So yeah, all, all of that. I love that. So I want you to tell us in your experience, what do you think that you need to have in your company portfolio or your pitch to increase your likelihood of receiving funding? Is it local PR? Like you have a certain amount of revenue, professional experience, sales, like website visits. Like what are you showing to try to get them to pull to to pull in and to pull you in and, and give you money? Yeah, I, mean, I think there are a few things that you have to have. I think if you can't get PR, have revenue. If you can't get revenue, then have PR. If you can't get any either of those, have a have someone to walk you in as a as an introduction. So I don't think it's any one or two things. I think make yourself a, a really nice cocktail of of, of things, right? Mm. So yeah. So for me, it was I don't have money. So I'm going to do PR, right? I'm going to really pursue really good PR and tell a really compelling story as to 
why this is important and why there's a market for this. But then I also, through my accelerators, was able to build a network. Like, I have a really strong network now, but when I first started, I had no network, you know? And so it's just over time. I think it's sometimes it's a matter of build a relationship and put it in your pocket. Yeah. You don't always have to immediately go in and make an ask for money. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of founders go wrong. Like they go in and they're like, and yeah, we know you become like some of the, some of the relationships that I built two years ago, those seeds I planted are being harvested now. Right. So it's making sure that whatever is your most compelling thing is the thing that you lead with. Because it could just be that you just have this great idea and you know how to bring it to fruition. You know, you've got affiliations with all these mom groups, or you've got this, you've got that. So you can show them where if I had just, you know, if I had this amount of money, then this is how I could get to that. And this is what that revenue would look like in just a year. You know, for um, a lot of founders of color, you do not have the benefit of not having revenue. Yeah. When you're going to ask for money, you've got to have some traction. It, you, I think it's very rare that you're going to get um, capital without, with just an idea. You know, that happens, but it, it doesn't really happen for founders of color at this point. Now, hopefully it'll get to the point where you've got this great idea and you just, and you need money. That's where that creative financing comes in. And that's, hopefully it'll be us passing down the money in the, in the next 10 absolutely, years. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's what I think we are called to do, I think. You know, there's too many prominent African-American business leaders, um, athletes, um, entertainers that just are not reinvesting um, in Black founders. You know, it's so funny, like as I was applying for things and I started working out my mission statement, it's not intentional, but what's happened a lot, I think a lot of Black women have gravitated toward me and they've been a lot of the women that I've been helping throughout building the toy coach. It's crazy. And like, at first I thought, oh, I don't have a social mission behind the toy coach. And then as I was writing about it, I'm like, I think I do. And it's not just black people. It's anybody with an idea that's like a minority, an idea that a big toy company won't want to invest in or thinks it's like too small time, too niche. Like it's this like minority concept uh, person that I serve. So it's, it's so interesting. I don't know. I think that is something you only learn. I thought about your business a lot and I thought, wow. Yeah. So this is what, this is what I was thinking. I was like, I wonder if she thought about getting incubator money. I, I, I'm, I'm plain spoken. That's where the hustle is really. I mean, I look at all the capital that's being deployed to incubators that are serving people of color. Right. And most of the money stays in those incubators. There might be like little trickle down um, capital that comes to the entrepreneurs that are in there. And I will say a lot of these are being built with, with great intention. Right. So, you know, they're giving good information. They are giving access to capital, you know, those kind of things. But, but I thought about like, wow, like what if Mattel had wanted to build a pipeline and they funded you to do an incubator. Oh, is that how it works? Yeah. Um, or that, that a lot of them, a lot of them are funding like this. So what if the toy industry association said, you know what, there's not enough diversity in toys. Let's pay a gel to do an incubator for founders of color. So these are the kind of things that I think through. To close out this conversation, Terry, could you give us three takeaway tips for entrepreneurs and inventors that are like just starting out that are in need of funding to make their dreams come true? I'm going to say, look for accelerators in your market that come with capital, right? Um, There are also a number of grants out there for women business owners and not like going federal biz, none of that kind of stuff, but there are local grants that are being dispersed right now. And look in your local market for those. Stay local. That's that's number one. Stay local, right? Um, I would say really know and learn who your market is going to be. Be very clear on who that is. If you're starting out, you probably have very uh, limited resources. So you want to maximize those resources as much as possible. So uh, hyper-target your local community. Do uh, partnerships, do collaborations with folks that are in your same sphere. Do you kind of doing that same kind of um, worker in your lane? If it's you know, like local mom groups, whether it's, you know, local schools and offer the PTA, you know, like a discount if they, you know, do something. Or even if you want to test with a group of students at a school, say, I've got this educational product and I love to test it. So then really know your story. Just take some time, spend some really good time 
crafting your story. And it should be your story. When I have to write an, a grant or an application to do something, whatever, like I can do it cold because I've got this thing down, right? I don't really deviate from how did I start? Why do I do it? What is my why? And so you have to know your why. Just really be creative. There's no linear way to do this. There's no one way to build your business. Sometimes it's going to be through building a network. Sometimes it's going to be through local PR. Sometimes it's going to be through finding investors. I would say that you have limited resources. Be creative. And it's okay to not have the most beautiful packaging, the best thing, you know, when you first start. I know, I think it's Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn. He said, if I had waited until LinkedIn was beautiful, I would have never launch LinkedIn. I'm on iteration number seven or eight with our boxes. Because our first boxes were ugly. But it was about just start, you know? And that's what I encourage people to just start. And don't invest too deeply in that first start so you can change, right? Absolutely. I did that in my first business. I invested way too deeply so I couldn't change. <laughs> I yep. was like, oh no. <laughs> had I known what I know now, I would have done things, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, and protect your IP you know, trademark your name, do those different things, like things that people don't think of, like, I don't need to do that. I'm not that big or whatever. Trademark your name. It's not enough just to get your URL. No. Yeah. <laughs> get your URL before you register your business because they will swoop and take it. Yes. So. Yes. And then there's that. <laughs> there's that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Terry. This was such a fun conversation. I had a great time. I had a great time too. I mean, you know, I love you to pieces. So anything you ever need, just let me know. And I'm so proud of you. Thank you. And you really have done an amazing job showing women, showing black women that there is a place for them in the toy industry. So kudos to you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And before you go, before I forget, tell everybody where they can find you and connect with Brown Toy Box. Sure. Go to browntoybox.com. On all social, it's browntoybox. And on my website, browntoybox.com. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Terry. See you later. Bye. Thank you. Okay, toy people, there you have it. My interview with Terry Nichelle Bradley, founder and CEO of Brown Toy Box. This episode should really serve as your inspiration for acquiring funding and growing your startup toy business. The biggest takeaway that I want you to walk away with from this conversation is to start local. Look for local funding opportunities, local PR opportunities, hyper-focus on being known locally for your business so that you avoid diluting your marketing and advertising efforts. Now, if you love this podcast, but you haven't left a review yet, what are you waiting for? I love hearing about how this podcast influences your toy business or inspires you to become a toy entrepreneur or inventor. Also, if you want to get to know other listeners of this podcast and hang out with me online, join the MIDI Podcast Facebook group. You can grab the link in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for joining me today to listen to this podcast episode. I know there are a ton of podcasts out there, so it means the world to me that you tune into this one. Until next week, I'll see you later, toy people. Thanks for listening to Making It in the Toy Industry podcast with Agile Wade. Head over to thetoycoach.com for more information, tips, and advice. Hey, are you an aspiring toy inventor or toy entrepreneur? Then you should check out Toy Creators Academy, the first of its kind online program designed to help you develop and pitch your toy ideas. Head over to toycreatorsacademy.com to learn more.